0: The occupational hazard of making a spectacle of yourself over the long haul is that at some point you buy a ticket too. Thomas McGuane, Panama. Hello and welcome to Brett Easton Hell Yes, the podcast where every week we take a deep dive into one of the works of controversial author Brett Easton Ellis. Our episode this week is a two-parter. First, I'm going to talk to returning guest, the wonderful Leslie Lee the third of Struggle Session. And after that, I have a conversation with Langdon Hickman of the podcast Death Sentence. Mm-hmm. host, Katie Wright, and joining me this week for a second time, I'm very excited to have him back, is writer, journalist, and co-host of the podcast Struggle Session, Leslie Lee Third. Leslie, hello.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me back.
0: Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, so we talked about, I'd like to open with talking about my guest's history with Brett Easton Ellis. Um, we kind of covered this on your last appearance on our American Psycho episode. But for anybody who didn't catch that one, will you just kind of give us a quick rundown of your relationship to the man? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, um, yes, I've been, uh, a, I'm a big, big fan of Brett Easton Ellis um started reading him after i saw the film american psycho and then i read american psycho loved it Um, uh, and then i just dived into his whole um bi- uh, bibliography and enjoyed pretty much everything i read um i really love his writing i i like what, what i like about you know reading and in any type of art or fiction, is it gives you a glimpse into different worlds, different lives that you don't get to experience anywhere else. And for, uh, for, uh, someone who comes from you know a very distinctly not upper middle class white background, it's interesting to see read Brett read about it and tell all their dirty secrets and point out that they all um are live extremely vapid and shitty lives. It brings me great joy.
0: <laughs> yeah, there is something about Brett. Like, he's the only writer that I'm super into who I'll read like an entire book and not identify with any of the characters and not feel like a connection to them, but still be like, yeah, this was worth reading.
1: Yeah, it's it's there's a voyeuristic element to it, which is fine. I think I, it doesn't have to be about, you know, you placing yourself in this situation. You can just, you know, read about all these ugly, terrible people and their terrible lives and all the terrible things they do to one another. That's fine too.
0: <laughs> yeah. So today we're talking about Lunar Park, um which uh is kind of an outlier in Brett's work would you agree
1: yes it's a very strange book in a lot of ways very different he was definitely doing something very different here um so uh Lunar Park it basically was his attempt to make a tribute to kind of Stephen King um and that type of horror because now is a lot that people don't know, he's like a really, like a genre guy, like a horror film guy, like a gumshoe detective guy, you know, he likes that kind of thing. That's why the, his next book is more of like a noir, noirish drama, um, Imperial Bedrooms. This one was his attempt at Stephen King and his horror elements into it, fantastical elements to it, and also it's strange because this is also his most personal book possibly. Maybe we don't really know, um, because he is the main character in it, but it's a fictionalized version of himself,
0: yeah. And it's like an extremely fictionalized version because this Brett Easton Ellis is married and has a son and a stepdaughter,
1: yes, yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This Brett Easton Ellis is straight, but it's worth getting into like how he, the, like, the first couple, first chapter of it blew me away because he basically tell does make an autograph, uh, it is like a mini autobiography of him of his real life. But as you read, as a long time uh, Easton Ellis fan, like you read stuff that you've read before that you know is true, but then he mixes in stuff that you're not so sure about. And, and they actually, when the book came out, they actually did some like alternative reality game website. So that then, so you if you came across an unfamiliar name while he's telling his biography you google it and you find that this person is actually a real person even though they weren't um (laughs) it's very yeah so the way he you know combines this you know fictional narrative with his real life is one again a very subtle thing but very it just brings you right into it It makes it feel that much more intense i feel it makes you want to keep reading because he's telling all all his stories about his youth, his wild partying, and he's draw- adding in new details that we don't know if they're true or not. We don't know if Madonna went to his graduation party or not, but it feels true reading it while you're doing that.
0: yeah, the first the, like the first few times I read this book, I kind of like took everything, everything from the like biographical chapter at face value and I yeah. was like oh yeah so of course he like was a guest VJ on MTV for a week in the 80s and of course he was like invited to the White House by Reagan
1: <laughs> and the Bushes, <laughs> like the the Bushes, Bushes more- are both big fans of the book <laughs> yeah. and of course he's and- in a feud with Keanu Reeves <laughs>
0: <laughs> right yeah yeah and there's not really any clear signifier of like where the line is between the fictional Brett and real Brett um so then it kind of makes it hard to say like how much how much of fictional Brett's like inner life and emotional struggles are real and how much those are just like created for the sake of the novel.
1: yeah, and it's very it's even deeper than that because it's like he this novel is about his uh, in a lot of ways about Brett's father, who he mm-hmm. has talked about he had you know a lot of troubles with he based some of Patrick Bateman on him but the we don't know to what detail what he says about his father It's his real experience or if it's just hiding and and he talks about some you know physical abuse you know verbal abuse like the messy divorce like how afraid he was of his father and that's certainly something that he's at least talked about somewhat um, outside of fictional narrative. But you don't really know how much of that in this intro, at least, is real in the in the novel is really uh, true. What actually happened, or him just creating a narrative for an interesting story?
0: Yeah, and it's it's really interesting that so much of this book is kind of about uh, having a tortured relationship with his father, and about like his father being abusive, and also, but the book is still dedicated to his father. Yes. It's it's very interesting.
1: Yeah, before I read that, I I before I read this one, I and just hearing interviews from him, I thought his, you know, relationship with his father was, you know, a little bit trouble, a little bit acrimonious at a certain point but not, but something that he had more or less grown to like accept and, you know, had come to a good place on the novel suggests, you know, it may have been a lot more worse and more intense than he let on before. But again, we don't really know like which, uh, which aspect of this is true.
0: Yeah. And he says, so he opens the novel with kind of like going through each of the novels that he had published up to that point and kind of talking about, uh, the novel as a whole but also like specifically kind of about the opening line of each novel um uh and in in that he ta- when he's talking about american psycho he says that patrick bateman is based on his father right yes which is something that he said for a long time and then in like more recent years he started to be like no, Patrick Bateman was me. I just said it was my father to take the heat off of me. Yeah,
1: it, it's. I mean, because and and then before it was just Patrick Bateman it was based on these Wall Street guys. I knew. I I think it's. I mean, it's a bit of all those things. Obviously. Yeah. You know, it's it's not. Uh, there's not just one answer there and ultimately it doesn't matter because he wrote the novel like a long time ago it doesn't really matter (laughs) who pat he he based patrick bateman on i think i mean even saying it's based on himself like when we read, um, Pat, we, we talked about this on the American Psycho episodes. Like, you know, Patrick Bateman is the only one in the novel with a moral compass who's disgusted by all that's going on. So there's that element of Patrick Bateman. We don't know which part of Patrick Bateman is the physically abusive part. You know, the father, the disdainful, cynical part. Brett, um, all the you know, the lazy, slack ass part. The F- Wall Street guys, or is it just all, all mixed up? We don't. Really Really know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of questions. Um, uh, so Patrick Bateman is maybe is maybe like a hybrid of of Brett and Brett's father. And also, you know, also all these variety of other things um i feel like the character brett easton ellis is also a hybrid of brett and brett's father do you get that feeling yeah so
1: he said this before like he was he had been working when he started working on this novel he'd been working on it for a while the main character was not brett easton ellis uh oh i didn't know that yeah he he couldn't figure out the novel until he decided to it was just like some other writer but when he put, his, when he said, oh, I'm going to, because and the way he pronounced his name is so funny. He, he pronounces his own name, Brady Sinellis. <laughs> 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 so, but when he, he just said, you know, when I named the character Brady Sinellis, <laughs> then I figured out the novel and it all came together. And then the intro came together and then everything worked because he hadn't planned on making this autobiographical novel that came later on.
0: Oh, that's so interesting because that seems like such a central piece of the story. But I guess the creative process is a mysterious thing. Yes. <laughs> um, so he opens with this um, with this autobiography of um, de- debatable reliability. Um, and kind of he goes through his bibliography and talks a little bit uh, about each one. Um, and he he's sort of introducing like the character, Betty Stanellis is writing a celebrity memoir, basically. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um And he's so he's talking about the book Lunar Park um, and he kind of closes out this autobiographical um, uh, intro with um, the words Lunar Park mean something only to my son. And these are the last two words of the book. And by the time you get there, um, you'll understand what they mean, too. Um, And I feel like that to me, like really suggests that there's going to be more like answers and like more of a tidy wrapping up of things than there turns out to be in this book because when you get to the ending it's like very unclear what lunar park means (laughs) and i feel like that's like a little bit of a prank
1: i mean it is a prank (laughs) because it's like this very touching you know he's touching you know um very you know emotionally passionately about this son that doesn't exist <laughs> and yeah. it's like it's just between us but you you'll figure it out too along with my son who i love very dearly <laughs> like it's, it's very it's a very funny thing like you and you there's a i guess there's a um, chain of amusing parts called like luna park yeah that people think is are is the title of this book but it's actually not
0: Right, and he outright says in the intro, like it is not a reference to Luna Park. That's a misconception. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he's just like fucking with you. And then at the when he at the end of the book, when you finally get there, the last two words are Lunar Park, but it's just a reference to the title of the book. Like it's no explanation yeah. of what Lunar Park means.
1: <laughs> yeah, so it is kind of you know when you look look at this on Wiki, they call this a postmodern novel which i guess is you know true in a lot of ways it references <laughs> itself it references other art it, uh, represents it, it talks about the artist and involved in it. it talks to the reader directly a lot of times which i, I think brett does on occasion um it, it's a play there's a lot of playfulness here with uh, especially in the intro and towards and the, the ending there's a lot of playfulness with you know the literary form uh, where he's like Brett Easton Ellis is not really playing it straight. He's deliberately he he loves ambiguity and nothing's more ambiguous than postmodernism. So he kind of revels in, in this for a bit uh, with this novel at least.
0: Yeah. Um, so one of the ma- one of the big things that people talk about with this book is it being a uh, uh, an homage to Stephen King. Uh, are you a Stephen King reader?
1: Uh, you know I. Don't consider myself so, even though I've read a few of his books. Um, but I, I never got the experience where I read a Stephen King book and then I'm like, okay, I got to read another one. Like, I okay. read them every so often. Like I, and I enjoy some of, some of them, too. I enjoyed his recent one called Revival, which was his... Homage, homage to H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. I, I also enjoyed um, Salem's Lot, which includes an homage to H.P. Lovecraft in the last chapter. I, I've read quite a few Stephen King books, but I've never been a huge fan of his. There's just something about his... I, I like his plots, but his writing doesn't really super win me over. Um, I like getting to the end and figuring out what happens, but like I don't really feel the joy of reading his prose that I do from a Bret Easton Ellis. Really,
0: yeah, I get that. He's not—he's not a big like style guy. He's like—he's like an idea man. <laughs> yeah, he's
1: much, of, and like so many of his novels could be like short stories, and probably be a little bit better at short stories often. <laughs>
0: Yeah, um, that's funny because it's something I say about Brad. <laughs> 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 um, I went through a big a big Stephen King thing like in middle school and high school. I was a huge Stephen King fan. Um, and now now I'll still read him sometimes. But yeah, I, I'm a little bit more like, oh boy, this writing is not all it could be. <laughs> so so I, I identify with that. But you've read enough Stephen King to kind of have a, a sense of his style. You're, you're familiar enough. Yes, yes. Um, are you, do you uh did did this land with you as a as a Stephen King homage does it feel particularly Stephen Kingy more than like general haunted house y
1: well i I would have to say it seems more general haunted house but that's because of the particularities and peculiarities of Stephen King yes of course and, you know Stephen King likes writing about writers a lot of his characters are writers but it's a particular type of a single noble kind of writer that he's usually writing about like not a married piece of shit who does <laughs> who, who drinks and does coke right like he's he's not like this snivele, sniveling little wimp that the Br- braced nellis character is he's more like he's like a you know like a kind of a tough guy writer in the sense of kind of a man's man but smart too um it does this novel does not take place in uh, Maine as far as I know and that's a huge part of it it does take place in suburbia but a different I feel like a different type of suburbia than what Stephen King or not even Stephen King doesn't even do suburbia it's like small town usually yeah
0: so yeah small town or like middle of nowhere like rural
1: yeah, so it's really like so much of Stephen King is about that, about the type of characters he chooses, the setting he chooses, and Bray Easton Ellis is like the complete opposite of that. So I'm sure Brett was trying, was doing. I mean, I think it's good that he didn't, you know, try to ape every single element and kind of just made okay, what would a Brett Easton Ellis ghost haunted house story be more than i'm gonna brett easton ellis is going to try to write stephen king i think that um is a good idea i think it's good that he didn't try to set this in maine in a small (laughs) rural town and he didn't try to make brett easton ellis like a tough guy and and like a brave (laughs) or anything like that (laughs) or even smart he's not even that smart (laughs) and i have to say in this novel
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. He's really, he's a character with like very little, <laughs> very little to redeem him, right? Yes. Like he has a, he, not even like a love for his wife and children really like he's weirdly cold yeah, to them yeah the
1: novel is about how like he he finally learns to love his son once he's gone once he's <laughs> yeah. no longer a problem once he no longer once he no longer has to deal with him which i feel like is could be like a, a real thing an emotional thing and it kind of gives it like the the ghost the ghost element the supernatural element is really really secondary here to this emotional relationship and that's why another reason why it's not so much like a stephen king novel because and this is not a knock on him i do feel like he's stephen king generally is more about the plot and the monsters and less the characters For the most part, I think there's some exceptions like, um, the Dark Tower series. That's very, that has very strong uh, characters in it and you spend a lot of time with them and they're good characters. But I feel like the average one-off Stephen King novel is more of a horror short story linked into novel size and you kind of lose sense. The characters aren't necessarily as important as, you know, what happens.
0: That's interesting. I actually have like, um, I I f- sort of feel like the characters in Stephen King are like the the main thing that draws me into oh, really? Stephen King. Yeah, um, and you know he's he's written so many books. There might there might be like very little overlap in what you've read and what <laughs> I've read. So so we might be both right about what different books what we've we're both read. right yeah. about different books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but in the Stephen King that I've read and the ones that I love, I feel like the characters like. I'm like, okay, this writing is like maybe a little shaky, but like the characters are so like rounded and so interesting that they like. You know, I I
1: might be a little bit unfair because I do like the, I feel it. It's less the main character, but the side character is always pretty interesting mm-hmm. to me. So I might, mm-hmm. might might be being unfair to Stephen King there. It's usually the main character that I feel is more like a blank vessel, it's, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And like mm-hmm. I think being a a plot driven novel is fine. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But I do think feel like it's different uh, than this novel, which is just mo- really about like the the ghost story doesn't really matter. Uh, ultimately, it's really just about. This Brett Easton Ellis character learning how to—I don't know—he doesn't necessarily become less of a piece of shit, but you know, kind of maybe slightly less one now that his son's gone.
0: <laughs> yeah, he, he he learns to at least love his son in theory.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess the better way to say it is that this novel is not about like getting rid of the ghosts or fighting the ghosts. Like that's not yeah. the uh, the point of the uh, strong part of the novel whereas with something like Salem's lot which i think is an amazing novel it's still you know what drives novels like how do you kill these fucking vampires <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah the it is interesting how like there are these horror story haunted house elements um, and they kind of they kind of come out of the ether kind of not summoned by a, any clear one thing, and yes. then they, they, at, at the end of the book, they kind of go back into the ether. yes.
1: <laughs> they come and they go. He, uh, it does. He does blame the wife at the beginning, though, for naming the son Robbie. I I just <laughs> noticed that uh, when I got because Robbie is his father. Yeah, Robert fa- is his father's right. name. Yes. Yes. But that's like the best, you know, thing he can come up with for why this is happening. It's like, it's my wife's fault.
0: (laughs) Yeah. He blames his wife for a lot of things in this book, and it drives me crazy. (laughs) Like, I know he's supposed to be a shitty dude character, um, but I feel like the wife is just like such a flat and unrealized character that, uh, (laughs) that I don't feel like she can hold the weight of an unsympathetic character being wrong about her i don't know do you feel like his wife whose name is jane um with a y in it jane um do you do you feel like jane uh is an interesting character do you think she's a well-written character i think do you think she needs to be
1: i i don't think she needed to be really because it's it's about his distance from his wife from his son He's kind. Of, he doesn't want to be in this marriage he's not in love with her so it kind of makes sense that she is an actress kind of off doing her own thing generally and generally disconnected with him and we don't really get it, we don't really know her because he doesn't know her so like it it wouldn't really make a ton of sense brady stannis always talks about like what he tries to write from the perspective of what would the, my protagonist notice what would my mm. protagonist notice? Like, even if he's just sitting in a restaurant, am I writing a protagonist who's going to notice the decor or am I writing the guy who's just going to be, you know, staring at the uh, table and scribbling on it? You know, he tries to he doesn't want to do any fakery with that. So I think part of why Jane becomes kind of like this uh, blank wall of, you know, justified aggression towards Brett is because that's all he can see. It that's all his character can see. He can't understand her. He's 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 a complete narcissist. He doesn't really care about anyone else but himself. So of course he doesn't know anything about his wife.
0: Yeah, that does make sense. Like Brett Brett Easton Ellis the character, definitely seems like the kind of guy who would not notice anything about his wife except when she's yelling at him or when she's crying. Sure. Um yeah, I just—I still wish that something about her like came through a little bit. Like you can have—you can have narrative where like the character isn't noticing noticing something, but it's still there for the reader to notice. Um, yeah, I just—I don't know. I just wish she felt like more of a person. I,
1: I just think that's not the type of writer that Brett easton is. Ellis- is generally Mm -hmm. like he's very like in the head of his main his narcissistic characters and so like unless like jane was going to get her chapter that she narrates there's only so much we're ever gonna really figure out about her and know about her like i like like thinking about it we don't know anything about we don't really know the internal world like any depth to any of the characters in American Psycho except Patrick. We don't, we, we, just, we just don't even, no matter how much he talks about them, we just we know what they wear, we know what they look like, but we don't know any, we don't get ever get any sense that they have any kind of internal world or motivations or thoughts that uh, aside from the uh, dipshitty things that they say, we, we just don't get that, I think we feel the same. T- I think generally, spe- I think if, if we go th- through the novels, like, um, less than zero. It's kind of, I, get, I think we could probably get a little bit more of Blair. Like, I think we get a better understanding of like who Blair is, but a lot of the other characters we don't because Clay generally cares for Blair though. So that's kind of part of the reason why I think you don't think, do you think so?
0: I don't know. I, I kind of I I feel like Lesson Zero is another. Uh, I I feel like Lesson Zero, like all of Brett's books, I feel like only the narrator really comes across <laughs> yeah. as a character. <laughs> I, I I guess
1: I'm I'm also mixing Lesson Zero with Imperial Bedrooms, where Blair gets to be kind of uh kind of a villain in it. So we get a little bit more of her motivations through that because she's kind of. You know, manipulating things from behind the scenes. I guess we know a little bit about Rip, but uh, Rip is just like a complete psychopath. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he is. He's, when you go through the novels, like he is so far into all these characters' heads that we don't really get anything else. You know, that's why probably Rules of Attraction had to have three different narrators because we couldn't have gotten the full story from any one of them.
0: Yeah. Uh, Let's take a break here. We're going to go to commercial, and uh, we'll be right back.
2: (laughs) Hello, listener. Do you like a scare, a jump, a fright? How about Maine? How do you feel about Maine? If any of those words made your heart skip a beat, then I've got a podcast for you. King Me is a monthly Stephen King podcast where I, Tom Lockney, and a guest watch through a theatrical adaption of a work by everyone's favorite Northeastern author, and talk about it with a little help from the source material. So, if you're feeling particularly brave, join me on my Descent into Terror on the Major Casts Network or wherever you find podcasts.
0: So, uh, Leslie, I wanted to get in a, l- a little bit more into like what the actual supernatural menaces of this story are because there are so many <laughs> and, uh, and I feel like they're not, they're not all clearly connected to each other. Um, so we've got, we've got like ghost dad, um, uh, Brett's, Brett's dead fathers, like sending emails from the bank yes, where his ashes are stored in a safe deposit <laughs> box in, de- in defiance of his will because <laughs> he wanted his children to <laughs> spread them. I think in the ocean. Yes. Uh, and um, we've got um, the Turby, which is um, Brett's stepdaughter's doll, which is a really horrific, like, bird doll.
1: Yeah, like a Furby, but uh, terrible uh, and evil. Yeah. And based on a real doll that Brett's sister used to torture him with.
0: Oh, is that true? Yes. <laughs> That's funny. And uh, Turby is why Brett backwards <laughs> yes. That's one of the things that people why point Brett? to. <laughs> that's one of the things people point to is like a big Stephen King homage. It's like the red rum moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um and there's um there's this kind of like the house. This I think this is like the coolest supernatural menace is that the house that Brett and his family live in are is like kind of changing like the furnitures rearranging yes. itself and the carpet's changing color and then eventually he realizes it's like slowly transforming into his childhood home yeah
1: yeah that was a good one that was a good one that was really yeah really creepy <laughs> yeah uh,
0: um uh and then there's um this like this is not revealed until the end but there's a s- serial killer posing as a detective yes. who is possibly also possessed by the spirit. Of
1: Patrick Bateman.
0: Of Patrick Bateman, yeah. Um, oh, and then there's also another guy who is the student. possibly Patrick Bateman. Yeah, there's a student. Named
1: Clay. Who he says he's named Clay, who's very- He int- says he's named Clayton, Clayton. Clayton. So he's a little bit different. Clayton, who looks like who looks like both Brett and Patrick Bateman- and clay <laughs> is described as yeah. looking like, like remarkably like all three of them uh, somehow yeah.
0: yeah don't they also say he looks a little like christian bale <laughs> yes i
1: believe so yes <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so there's there seems like there seems like there's a thread of um being haunted by your dead dad cuz you didn't dispose of his ashes properly which makes sense and then there's like a thread of kind of like the things that brett has written like manifesting in the real world Yes, uh, and and really happening, which I feel like is kind of a, a horror trope that you see in other places, especially in Stephen King. Yes, uh, and then there's also there's also a oh there's also like little boys like disappearing themselves.
3: Oh um, yeah yeah yeah. It
0: it, that, it's but, a little un, yeah. That's a whole we haven't even talked about the boys disappearing. Oh, but that's kind of import, important. Important uh, element of the story. Yeah, the,
1: don't they leave like letters um, to their parents?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they, they email each yeah, other. Email like, the boys each other. who've yeah. disappeared. Email the boys who haven't disappeared yet.
1: Yeah. That's really uh, terrifying. Like <laughs> middle school boys, like having their own internal worlds. That's why, you yeah. know, that's why Discord is so terrifying. It's just a bunch of middle schools <laughs> on there text each other.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so it seems like there's kind of a lot of like, fantasy, horror-y stuff going on. And it doesn't really necessarily, at least to me, feel like it's all clearly connected. It seems like this story just kind of takes place in a world where, like, various ethereal things just, like, happen. Um, But I don't know if it's, I don't know if I just feel that way because, like, in a Stephen King novel, there would be a moment where, like, the story lays out for you, like, okay, this is why these things happen and here's how they're connected. And Brett, like, doesn't give you that moment. So maybe you're just like you have to connect the pieces yourself. Um, I'm curious, do you feel like you understand the ways in which the like uh, uh, otherworldly elements of the story connect?
1: Well, if anyone has listened to the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, he says this on almost every episode where he talks about horror. He Mm -hmm. hates hates explanations do not he does not <laughs> believe that you should explain the horror because that takes away all of the scariness It's no it stops being scary as long as as soon as you know what the rules are and how they work now this is not to say he doesn't believe having some internal consistency and having some unstated rules that you pick up on but any scene where somebody just looks this is why this happened this chemical plant spilled into here and killed this girl blah, blah, blah. he hates he doesn't like that in horror he likes the ambiguity and so of course if he's going to write a horror novel he's going to throw a bunch of creepy scary shit in without fully explaining it and i have to say there probably is no full explanation because there doesn't need to be one we just know that all these weird that brett this character named brett easton ellis went through this period of his life where he was haunted by his past failures and that's kind of all we need to know
0: Fair enough. Um, I'm curious. Do you think that this book is scary? I think so. Do some, you get scared I, reading it?
1: I think some elements are pretty creepy. Uh, the house changing, the um, it's not like a terrifying, super terrifying novel, but it has like you know what I would say, like similar to like some Stephen King novels where it's just like this creeping dread throughout the book. If anything, the only thing I can knock it for is that like. The Brace Nellis character is so funny and stupid that, like it, he's not as he's not smart enough to be as scared a lot of the time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um I find this book really scary. I'm I'm like especially terrified by the moment where we get this like found footage video in an email of like the night that Brett's dad died. Oh part- yeah. Fucking gets me every time, and then the turby is the other thing I'm really scared of. <laughs> I used to have a stuffed like um, I don't know if you've ever watched regular show, but like Mordecai from oh, regular yeah, show, oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: big, big tall, big long bro.
0: bird, yeah. And I, <laughs> I used to have one of those in my bedroom, and then at night I would be like, it looks like a turby. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I find I find this book really scary, and and yeah, probably the fact that you don't get a solution and you don't get an explanation probably contributes to it being scary across like multiple readings. Um, And yeah, I feel like the fact that you do get an explanation in, in kind of other horror stories, um, it does take away the, the scary aspect of it, but I feel like sometimes that's the point. Like a lot of horror authors want you to like work through your fear, but Brett, Brett wants to just perpetuate the fear and keep it going forever, which I
1: which is what the character deals with. He kind of has to deal with it forever. He doesn't really have a explanation. He loses his his marriage dissolves after this. Like he doesn't really like he doesn't defeat the monster. He doesn't you know reconcile it all together. And it's just kind of. I think that's what Brett's you know that's Brett's worldview on a lot of things. The only the really sh- surprising thing about this is that Bryce Ellis didn't die at the end of this one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, well, if he died, he couldn't have written the book. But whatever, he could have written the book. Yes. Sure. <laughs> um, one interesting like thread uh, throughout Lunar Park is um, sort of like Brett's relationship to his sexuality. And I didn't realize the first few times I read this book that that Brett wrote it before he was really out as a gay man when he was still sort of like cagey about how he identified. Um, But he makes several references, Brett, the character makes several references throughout the book to like the gay thing. And then at a certain point, he's like, okay, here's what happened. Like mm-hmm. in a jokey interview, I was like, yeah, I'm gay, <laughs> but I'm obviously not gay. But I just ran with it and let people believe I was gay. Um. And so he's, like, claiming to be straight. But then he also keeps, like, talking about how attracted he is to different men. And, and And like, he keeps hitting on men. In that
1: same passage, he talks about, like, when he's at the – just before his father died, he's there with a girl, but he hooks up with a guy. He starts having an affair with a guy there. And so um, I think – so it is interesting because this is about – Him being married to a woman (laughs) When he is, you know, lives as a gay man And he has a boyfriend A long-term boyfriend now So I I think... Um, For Brett, I think he kind of enjoys that element of it, like continuing to play with people and their expectations. I I think he he just laughs, he laughs and laughs whenever he thinks about how he wrote a novel, how he, about him having a wife and two kids. I think he finds that hilarious. (laughs) Fair
0: enough. It's pretty hilarious. And then at the end of the book um, he, after his wife leaves him and he gets divorced, he is living with a man. Uh, but it's it's not really like it doesn't really draw attention to itself. He's not like, oh, and, and I realized I was gay or whatever. It's just like, and eh, now I live with my boyfriend in Manhattan. <laughs> and it's kind of thrown yeah. away, but it's <laughs> sort of a coming
1: out story. And, and you know, I, I feel like that's, that's pretty like how he treated it in real life, too. Like I, I, I <laughs> he talked about I, I don't I don't want to misquote him because it's kind of a big thing. But I feel like when he talked about it on his show, he was just like, all right cause he had been in relationships with women, like many relationships over the years with women. But at a certain point he just said, all right, fuck it. I'm gay. (laughs) And and that was, (laughs) that was it. That's kind of how he just, you know, kind of phrased it. Like, you you know, like this is who I am or who I really always felt like who I always wanted to be. And like, yeah, that's it. Done.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to imagine him having uh handling it any other way. (laughs) Um, so uh, let's talk about Brett's son, Robbie, a little bit. Um, I sort of feel like in this story, I, I, we talked a little bit about the character of Brett being sort of a, a Brett and Brett's father hybrid. Um, I sort of feel like the character of Robbie is like just like young Brett. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um. And it's it's interesting, like the the relationship between uh, Brett and Robbie. Like the one one thing that always always uh, is interesting to me in this book is that Brett's son uh, calls him Brett. Yes. But Brett's stepdaughter calls him Daddy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, just to highlight how, like, you know how broken that bond is because you know he wasn't in his son's life for years and years quite deliberately just because he was an asshole like there is no yeah. other explanation and for it so they're trying to make it work trying to build together but the idea is like maybe it's too late and so you could look at that as a meta commentary on like when we again we don't really know if this is true or not where he talks about how his father tried to reconnect with him after his, um, books got published, Lesson Zero got published and it was a big success, and how Brett kind of ignored it. And it didn't make him feel any better to like ignore his father, but that's what it was. And it's kind of like this cycle, you know, Brett's not, you know, necessarily the same type of man his father was, but he has the same type of relationship with his son. His father was where his son is like distrustful and fearful of him.
0: Yeah. Um, later, so later in the book, um, there, there've been all these, uh, middle school boys disappearing and nobody's quite sure what's happening to them. And then Robbie disappears himself, uh, towards the end of the book. Uh, and then we kind of like jump, jump forward, uh, years and Brett like runs into Robbie at a McDonald's. Uh, and, and there's this, they have this Kind of interaction that's like I can't remember exactly what they say to each other, but it's sort of like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> We're, it's 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 sort of the first like positive interaction they yes. have. And Brett's like, come home, and Robbie's like, no, and then he just like disappears back into the ether yeah. again. Um, which, on like a literal level, is kind of kind of difficult to understand, but it kind of feels like the the like young boys disappearing yeah, yeah, exactly. in this Peter Pan. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, yeah. It's Peter Pan. Yeah, uh, it sort of feels like it. It's maybe representative of like Brett disappearing into the world of like. No, novel writing celebrity fame yeah. that kind of like separated him from his own father
1: because he used an interesting phrase the, when the novel got successful i was finally able to escape my father now that doesn't now that wasn't necessarily a, a physical escape it was more like a spiritual escape like i was no longer uh depending on him relying on him, I didn't have to deal with him if I didn't want to. Now they still saw each other and still uh, uh, spoke on occasion, um, but it was like, but like, kind of like that scene in the McDonald's. I'm sure that's kind of what, what them seeing each other every so often might have been like.
0: Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, and the so the the book ends with this like very very marked like shift in um kind of style it ends in in this kind of like it's almost like a prose poem <laughs> that's like several pages long of um the of brett and his i think his sisters like spread finally spreading their father's ashes uh in accordance with his will and then it's sort of um it just sort of goes it, – it describes the ashes, like, drifting across time and touching on all these different moments in Brett's life. Um, and this is, like, one of my favorite pieces of writing in all of the English language. Yes. <laughs> and I cry every single time that I read it. Um, I I don't know if I have anything to say about it other than that I'm just always, like – I think that this is the absolute, like – peak of brett's writing this is like my favorite thing that he's ever done it's just like the last two or three pages from those from
1: those of us who are left behind you will be remembered you were the one i needed i love you in my dreams that's that's amazing
0: (laughs) yeah and then at the very the very end of the book he says like if you see my son tell him i'll be here waiting for him between the pages of Lunar Park, which is such a like yeah. mysterious, like heart-tugging, but also like mysterious ending to a book. Like, I'll be waiting <laughs> inside this book. Um, yeah, I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's just it's very touching, even though we don't really, yeah. might maybe we don't really know what it means, <laughs> but it, <laughs> yeah. it does touch it touches on a certain level about you know what. What does literature mean? What does writing mean? It's about getting all these emotions out there on a page and having them live inside, between these covers, inside these books. This is where his love is inside the book. This is where Brett's love of his father is. This is where Brett's love of his friends, of his of himself, of his fans exists in between these pages right here. Yeah.
0: Um, so, uh, and on a, on a less, uh, a less emotionally resonant note my, one of my favorite things about this book is um the fictional character of jay mcinerney yes and 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 real life jay mcinerney's relationship to that um are you are you
3: familiar yes. with this <laughs> he,
1: little he hates it he hates it for some
0: reason
1: <laughs> yeah Even though it's very so, funny it's not Unflattering, necessarily. Mm,
0: He's just like he's just this like real party dude. He basically just like does a does a lot of coke, but he's not as shitty as as Brett. No, no, he's he's much better. He's married. He seems to be faithful to his wife, and he's like, oh boy, Brett, sleeping with your students again. I don't know. He's mostly—he's just like a good-natured party. Yeah, he's
1: like—he's just like the kooky neighbor, uh, kind of uh, (laughs) or the kooky best friend. Like, I don't know why he was so mad about it. Like, I guess because he felt like he had grown up from this, but Brett never really did. (laughs) And Brett was dragging him back to the literary backpack days. But it was fun. Like, like he should be flattered.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the really funny thing about this is that. Brett says that Jay hates it. And then I read, I read um, a profile of Jay where the interviewer brought up that he hates it, and Jay was like, "I don't know why Brett always says I hate it. I thought it was funny. He's always telling people that drives me crazy, but I think it's great."
3: <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> a good but prank. The
0: interviewer, yeah, but then the the interviewer like kind of notes that he seems like strained while he's <laughs> yeah. saying that, so she's not sure she entirely believes him. <laughs> so it's like one of two things happened here: either like either Brett claims Jay hated it, even though Jay didn't hate it, and like is fucking with Jay that way. <laughs> That's very funny. Or yeah, or. He wrote it and Jay hates it and he fucked with Jay that way. Like either either way, Brett is really fucked with Jay over this for like no reason. And I love it. It's great. It's great. <laughs> I love I truly love Brett's history of fucking with Jay through his writing. Like, are you familiar with Allison uh, Alison Poole? Yes, yes. Taking the character,
1: yeah. And, and yeah, then he brutally I- killer too, right?
0: He doesn't kill her, but she gets like horribly assaulted. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I love it. I love these men. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're weird, one-sided rivalry. <laughs> Jay has never once <laughs> shot back. <laughs> uh, except for like, um, it, 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 very mildly in an article or like in an interview being like, I don't know why he had to leave New York. (laughs) That's the best, that's the best Jay can do. But yeah, it, it truly, uh, it truly delights me. (laughs) Um, All right. uh, Any, is there anything in, in this book that you wanted to hit on that we didn't, that we didn't talk about
1: yet? Um no no I think um Lunar I just want to say overall like Lunar Park should not be your first brace Nellis novel. It might be it should po- possibly be your last. You should possibly read it after Imperial Bedrooms possibly. Um cuz it is kind of him wrapping up his uh literary history. If this was his final novel it would be kind of an interesting uh capstone um to his career because he does comment he does do commentary on all this work and this is the work that's most directly you know referencing him and his life but he does it in a very like interesting way like i don't need a brace and ellis autobiography like he does that in the first 10 pages and then he gets <laughs> bored with it and just goes off right like he doesn't find himself <laughs> interesting enough to write all the biography i, I think that's kind of cool
0: <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, I this was this was like for a long time like my absolute favorite Bret Easton Ellis novel and I would recommend this to people to read first and I feel like that has done no good. In the yeah. world. I feel like every every person who tried to read this one first was like this was not this was not the right one to start with. Yeah. <laughs> Which is fair. I just like it so much. Um okay, well, let's let's rate this bad boy uh, on a scale of one to five. Um, I'm going to rate it on a scale of one to five uh, belly button rings. Um, And I realized, I realized that, in the course in the course of doing this podcast, I realized that like I shouldn't have settled on this one to five scale because it really never captures my feelings towards <laughs> the book because my relationship towards almost every Brad Easton Ellis novel has like a lot of peaks and a lot of valleys. Um, so, taking that into account, I'm gonna give this book three and a half belly button rings because there is a lot of. Uh, There's kind of, I think the, the wife stuff really drags it down for me. I just think that Jane is such a boring character (laughs) rendered so boringly (laughs) Um, and everything about like their couples counseling and all of that. Uh, I just don't need it. Um, But there's also, as I said, some of my absolute favorite writing in, in all of fiction in this book. Um, So, you know, three and a half is a weird, a weird way to sum that up. And that's where I'm landing. (laughs)
1: I'm gonna say 3 I'm gonna agree with you. I'm gonna go three and a half turbies on this because I think this <laughs> okay. does contain like some of of if not the best you know Brett Easton Ellis prose and and writing. Like this is him at the top of his game, but it's not a book that really you know says anything about society or the world. This is just like a good story that's enjoyable to read, and that's completely different than everything else he's done. Like there's no. Societal commentary, social commentary, really. In this, this yeah. is more him like working out his issues with his dad, and he does it beautifully and wonderfully. But yeah, I have to do ding it uh, at least a star, star and a half, uh, because of that.
0: Yeah, have you? I'm curious, have you ever listened to the audiobook of Lunar Park? No,
1: I haven't.
0: It's read by James Vanderbeek, oh, who does, cool. a, yeah. who's like a good friend of brad's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and was in the rules of attraction. And he does a really good, like Brett <laughs> Brett voice. I can believe that without it being, yeah, without it being like an impression <laughs> of Brett. he just like really captures the like the heart <laughs> of of Brett. Um and that was my first introduction to this book. Like actually, prep- my preparation for this podcast was the first time I've actually read the physical book. But I've listened to the audiobook, like, Seven times. Oh, wow. Um, it's really like I give the audiobook like four and a half stars. I really feel <laughs> like James Vanderbeek's performance really elevates it. So I highly recommend it to everybody. Cool, cool. Uh yeah. Um, so uh before we before we close the book on Lunar Park, I just wanna I I like to pull up uh, any of brett's relevant tweets on any any book that we discuss here so brett uh brett was an active tweeter in the early teens he doesn't really tweet very much anymore but he used to talk a lot about reminiscing about his his past works so here's some of the stuff he said about lunar park um and he actually he never really he never really talked about Lunar Park, the book itself, but I guess in like 2012, there were talks for a Lunar Park movie, so he started tweeting about Lunar Park, the movie. So here, here are some of his thoughts on, on the movie that never was Lunar Park. Edward Norton was on the shortlist for the B-roll in Lunar Park when I heard that Norton would never be associated with a B-project, frowny face. Mm. Uh, Mark Ruffalo was so amazing in his few scenes in Margaret. I think he's my first choice to play the Brad Easton Ellis role in Lunar Park. (laughs) And then he says, Tom Cruise is my first choice to play the lead in Lunar Park. (laughs) This is the same day. (laughs) This is the same day. (laughs) Tom Cruise is my first choice to play the lead in Lunar Park. And I think based on the Roger Avery script, it will win him a best actor Oscar I
1: don't know about that <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: this this very same day I've made up my mind about Lunar Park Tom Cruise in an indie film plays a recovering novelist addict battling his demons is a win 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 Oh, uh, he also says I really like Ed Norton and think he would be so perfect as Brett Easton Ellis in Lunar Park I just don't get why he's so against me why <laughs> question
3: mark explanation <laughs> <And> question mark
0: <laughs> Uh, th- I just think those are fun. <laughs> um, I I really appreciate that Brett wants uh, like a, a leading man hunk to play him. <laughs> that's, that's what I would want to. Like I like <laughs> that.
1: I don't know about Tom. Yeah. Tom, Tom, he's Tom too he happy. I can You like he tried to like do the bad relationship with his son thing in War of the Worlds, and it's just hard to believe uh, that Tom Cruise is that much of a piece of shit. As, as an actor <laughs> as an actor as the right. image like in real life sure but like as a you know he's just too charming
0: who would you who would you cast as bredie Sonalis?
1: who you know because you have to it has to be kind of a it's called kind of heart right you have to think of a star of course but it has to be kind mm-hmm. of a like a wimpy like sniveling guy right like not <laughs> yeah. not a guy you and not, not and that's but that's who the character is in the book someone who you know is in a fake relationship a fake marriage mm-hmm. i only have to say kanye west
0: <laughs> i love mm-hmm. it that's perfect casting <laughs> uh all right we did it Le- leslie thank you so much thank you um before I bid you goodbye, I like to I like to uh, give my listeners the opportunity to balance out their literary diet by recommending something a book by an author who is not Freddie Stinellis. And I always recommend something that is not by a white man. My guest is welcome to recommend whatever they would like. Um, So my recommendation this time around is Swamplandia by Karen Russell. Um, It's in some ways similar to Lunar Park because it's a sort of – mystical magical living in an unclear space sort of family horror novel um about a, a family that runs a, a gator themed uh, amusement park in the Florida Everglades uh and the the mom dies and then the family sort of crumbles and they're there's a ghost element, there's, it's, I don't, I don't want to say too much about it, but it's a really great novel, um, and it's both whimsical and very, very dark, uh, funny, and, and very, very sad, Um, so I think if anybody, anybody who enjoyed Lunar Park, I think would also very much enjoy Swamplandia by Karen Russell. Uh, Leslie, would you like to recommend a book?
1: Yes, if you want more, you know, somewhat incomprehensible, but <laughs> deeply scary horror, I would ch- mm-hmm. recommend checking out Thomas Ligotti's uh, collection, uh, Songs of a Dead Dreamer and Grim Scribe. There's two short story collections. They're all in one um, book now by Penguin. Thomas Ligotti is a very important, very influential uh, horror writer. If you watch the first season of True De- De- Detective, all the cool shit uh, that Cole says is by him. And so I would definitely recommend checking it out.
0: All right. That sounds amazing. I love incomprehensible Mm -hmm. (laughs) horror. All right. uh, So, Leslie, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Uh,
1: Yes. Patreon.com slash Struggle Session. Please subscribe. Our show is a cultural podcast with a political bent. We have tons of great guests, tons of great topics, a couple of brace Snellis episodes, and we've got more coming up. So please, please uh, check us out.
0: You got to check it out it's a great show all right thank you so much for being here leslie thank
1: you for having me peace
0: okay joining me now is a host of the podcast death sentence he's also a writer for treble invisible oranges and consequence of sound it's langdon hickman hello Hello, thank you for being here.
2: Absolutely, first time that we're recording this, not <laughs> not the second time, Na- yeah, nailing I, it in one go.
0: I absolutely did not forget to hit the record button, the one thing I had to do. There
2: are no unrecorded segments that are lost for time. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. That's They don't exist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um. So Langdon, first thing I would like to know about you is a little bit of your background with Brady Stanalis. What's your relationship to the man?
2: My, I'm trying to think of how to do this. Whether like I should talk about the first time that I ran into him or my current relation to his work. Um, are they the first <laughs> Wait, one? First the, time
0: you ran into him, like physically, no, no, like not, in person, not, not physically. Gotcha. I don't. I don't. <laughs> okay. Because yeah. uh, I was gonna say start with that, but he's, okay. <laughs> he's way too rich,
2: and I'm a poor person, so we don't we don't come I got the vibe that he wouldn't commingle with me. Um, mm. One, partly because I'm poor, and two, I, I don't feel like we'd get along. That's fine um although i uh i uh i did quite begrudgingly enjoy his um uh lengthy and fair description of genesis's discography that he just for no reason put in there and uh that was american American psycho Psycho. but i was like because i'm a i'm like a like prog rock mega fan i'm like Oh. why is this here? I, oh, I love this. Why? Like, I can't, I can't honestly judge this book now because he just pitched one right to me.
0: Um, but, so, you know enough about Genesis to like fully oh, yeah. have an opinion on, on his assessment of Genesis. Yeah.
2: The first time that I saw American psycho in, in theaters, I was waiting for that part. And I turned to the person that I was seeing it with, who was just a friend of mine. I was like, you know, he's right. <laughs> These are all fair points. That's great. Um, but, uh, <laughs> i think um so i'm i'm 30 and i grew up basically in bookstores and video stores and stuff like that this is one of those kids so i ran into uh his work first time with just the film version of less than zero which was really big when i was growing up so like around the same time i saw like train spotting and stuff like that was like the it's not actually really independent cinema but it's Closer in vibe to that than a lot of other stuff that I could have been watching, and my like deeply negligent parents were just letting me rent whatever. Um, so <laughs> I was like,
3: yeah, it looks fine. Um,
2: and then, you know, obviously, like Lessons Zero um, is an imperfect. It, it's a more imperfect film than book, but even as a book, it's imperfect. But it's uh, like kind of thrillingly so. Like it's very raw. And then, you know, finding Mm -hmm. out later that it was because he started writing it when he was very, very young um, and literally in the midst of the things that happened. And I was like, okay, well, that's, you know, you can, it's like a, it's like a good lo-fi record or something like you can forgive certain Mm. technically imperfect things because they mean that it is somewhat more sincere. And so I was like, okay, well, then you start, started diving in and I was reading his stuff along the same time is like Chuck Palahniuk who I very quickly decided I did not like like at all. Oh yeah. <laughs> um he, <laughs> okay. he struck me as like a like a much much worse Brady Stanella. <laughs> okay. So um, Chuck Palahniuk I think sometimes gets really sort of self-impressed with um the uh moments of the grotesque in his work. Um which is fine. I mean like if you nail those kind of comp- I mean like I really like like gothic novels. So like Melmoth, the wanderer and like the monk and stuff like that. And those are sort of, um, hinged on moments of the grotesque. And so when they get that, you're like, Oh, you know, re- relish in it. But every now and again, it's like, okay, Chuck, you can, it's not that. And you just keep turning the page and you're like, Oh, you still, okay. All right. That's wow well, you're, you're, you're really, <laughs> a, really easy to impress yourself. That's I'm glad for you. I'm not going to finish this book. I hope you had a great time writing it though. Um, but Brad <laughs> Easton Ellis, I think, um, as much as some of the critiques of him are fair, I think he will hinge at least on some legitimately like um, catching moments. And so that those uh, also it feels like uh, it's an ironic bit of um, sort of the political affect of his work is that I think that you're far less likely to believe that you're supposed to be pitying the people in a Brett Easton Ellis book. So, like, there's an awareness mm-hmm. that, like, you're reading about shitty people doing bad things. And so, if you get mad that maybe even the author personally doesn't find them as shitty as that, it's like, well, the book does. Like, you you are illiterate if you can read these things and go, like, this is trying to tell me that all these are good and that you're good when you do this. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, that sort of charted, like, me reading through is that st- it doesn't hurt that he doesn't have all that many books either. So like you can, yeah. <laughs> if you're a serious reader, you can knock out like his entire body of work in like three, four months, um, and have time to spare. But, um, then again, being like a big, um, prog rock fan, I was reminded, um, when a band that I like called Porcupine Tree put out an album called Fear of a Blank Planet, which was very loosely based on Lunar Park, which Yeah. Um, and I didn't realize that at first I just got it. And I was like, Oh, it's really good. And then I was like reading up on it and I was like, Oh, it's based on, and then I looked at my shelf and I was like, Oh, I have that book. and then I just (laughs) started to reread it. And this was (laughs) like a decade ago, something like that now. Um, and it, it, that, that specific book grabbed me again because it, um, it cuts so harshly against the image of his work that i think most people carry around like if you just read um like think pieces or whatever about his work um then that's the one book that will cut the hardest against that image
0: yeah um what like what are some of the like specific things that jump out at you as like kind of going against the grain of the Brett Easton Stanellis um, brand well
2: it, that one is um while there's still moments of of the grotesque in it uh it focuses a lot more on a fairly traditional like literary fiction premise of just a man's relation to his family and relation to a specific moment in his life without necessarily being as uh plotty as some of his other books can be cuz like he he definitely likes pulp writing and he'll put like plot oriented stuff in there and there's nothing wrong with that I I read comic books and shit so I don't like I can't front on that um but uh this (laughs) one sits more in that sort of literary fiction space of just sort of hovering inside of this character's um head without there's barely any like plot stuff that happens like anytime I reread it like it does happen but it doesn't feel nearly as important to the heart of Lunar Park which is just um almost like the semi-fictionalized counterpoint to less than zero, but now he's an adult who's more or less he's Hollywood sober, so he's you know, he's still he'll do coke, but you know, he's not he's not like getting <laughs> fucked up and ruining his life or anything like that. And he was just like, I don't what I thought I should be dead and now I'm I'm rich. Like what? <laughs> and he was like, I still have problems with my family though, and then my dad is dead, and that's weird to me. Um <laughs>
0: That's interesting. Um, I have never thought of it as like the counterpoint to less than zero because like it's got such a it's got such a like so much of American psycho in it that those are just that's the one that I associate it with the more with the the most because, you know, like Patrick Bateman is sort of a character yeah. in it and stuff. um what I'm curious, like what's the like what's the what do you think is this biggest connection between lunar park and and less than zero? is it like what what makes those things feel so connected um, well, to well both of
2: them feel like uh so if american psycho which is still probably like his like central work like if every other if you had to eliminate every yeah. other book that would be the one that you'd be like that's the most him both for better and for worse like you're gonna get the true image <laughs> of him um in all its facets with just that one but Ironically, that one also was the less involved with sort of the central arc of most of the other books by him, which is that one felt like him psychoanalyzing America and going like, what's the ugliest but also most American figure that mm-hmm. I can present? Like, even if you didn't look at the title, it feels like um, have mm-hmm. him having grown up in the 80s and 90s to pick like a Donald Trump-esque figure in a very Prussian sense and go like that like it sucks, but that's the most American person you can think of is Donald fucking Trump. It's like every every negative thing you can think about um the world image of America is just summed up into a one shitty lumpy human. Um and then, you know, a book based on that. Um but Lunar <laughs> Park and uh Imperial Bedrooms to a certain extent and then also Lesson Zero are more um like a like a shitty critic would refer to it as like um self-obsessed writing from Bret Easton Ellis but i think it it's super super duper common in literary writing regardless of the gender of the person or sexuality of the person or anything like that to write about their own lived experience and trying to just like process it and like work through it step by step and so the arc of people's books tending to be you write about youth or near youth when you are near youth because that's when the experiences are freshest and you have the most details available in your memory of like little things that mark like this is what my life is like in my 20s and less than zero is definitely like I'm rich and white and in LA and I have access to all these horrible things and this is just what my life looked like. And you can also tell that a young person wrote it because there are sometimes some extremely melodramatic monologues that unfortunately are also very realistic for how people that age would talk. So it's like, it's (laughs) it's super realistic to a point where you're like, I don't like this. I don't, (laughs) this is why I don't hang out with children. Um, But uh, Lunar Park felt more like a counterpoint to that in um, him sort of stripping plot away. Like it, like he includes stuff about nine eleven and the post 9-11, like psychic trauma of America and both how absurd it is, but also how like literally real, like you could see it in the face of like every person in a supermarket, even if attacks of that scale happen globally like fairly consistently. Um, because he like he he had to. Like you can't write about like, oh, what's my lived life like in the early two thousands? I'm just gonna skip nine eleven, even though I'm American, just gonna <laughs> right. ignore it. Like you would be um
3: yeah.
2: and yeah, and so that part I think that resonated more with me of lesson zero of it being more Brady Stanellis looking around, going like, I need to write about where I am specifically me right now.
0: Yeah that makes sense. Yeah, it is it's funny how like saying his work is self-obsessed like sounds like an insult, but like I I feel like he is obviously very self-obsessed as a writer, but like that's great. Like he does a he does a really good job of writing about himself, but there's not really I don't know, there's not really a good way to say that that doesn't make it sound like a backhanded compliment. Yeah, and it's
2: like I think that um so it's it's a mode of writing that I think gets it, it, to be fair, it rightfully gets some shit because there are other ways to write. And it can sometimes occlude those other modes of like, writing more socially or writing more communally or um, with more of a mind to that kind of stuff. But I think also in some hand, it, as much as he relishes in it, and he even relishes in the negative attention, like he, he to his credit, he does <laughs> yeah. not care if you don't like him. He is very much like... <laughs> Like I'm I'm gonna mm. fly around in my jet and do coke regardless. Like I you you can say <laughs> whatever you want. Um but I don't think that figures like that necessarily pick sort of the fixation that other people develop on them. So I think a lot of the negative response to Brett Easton Ellis comes more from A combination of one occasional super fans and then two occasional super fans who are also like deeply illiterate um which are not (laughs) all of the fans but it's you know there's there's that chunk that are like there's there's no flaws in these books whatsoever and it's like well that's not Mm. you like there's flaws in Finnegan's wake like like and Mm. that's probably the best thing that's ever been written so you you know it's it's (laughs) fine like
0: Um, so you told me that, that, you, did you tell me, I can't remember, did you say that this was your actual favorite Brett Easton Ellis? Yeah. Novel? Yeah. I would, or, I, I would say yeah. that it's it,
2: actually my, my favorite one. It's the one that, um, depending on how my moods on him as a writer go up or down. It's the one that I can it, like at least consistently pick up and go like, Oh, this is a real, this is a really well-written <laughs> book. Um, and it, yeah, it captures someone's real experience. Like, I think sometimes we also fault ourselves into thinking that in order to like a book, we must then additionally personally relate to or personally like the things that they are conveying. And I think that, I mean, that's a valuable thing in books, but I don't think that's the only valuable thing. Like like, ultimately uh, his work when it's at its best is portraiture and you can like a portrait of a person that you don't like.
3: Yeah. Like that's yeah, because sure. because you're
2: liking the portrait. Like I don't have to then be right. like Oh, like yeah, yeah, that's you you made an incredible portrait, but I personally think that guy sucks. So the whole painting fucking right. like that that seems yeah. excessive. <laughs> like you can do that, but that, I don't. And it's especially easy when like so much of um this book deals with like the the grief of losing a parental figure especially in adulthood where you feel like you're supposed to be able to grapple with that but you you actually can't like there really is to anyone like who's lost like specifically a parent not a grandparent not a sibling or you know because there's other kinds of vectors of trauma there's something very specifically unique to like this person gave birth to me and now they're dead um and the like the way that he it can seem kind of crass the way that he relates that to nine eleven, but that also in sort of like the the holography of grief oh boy let's use my fancy words i spent all them monies learning <laughs> um <laughs> it, in the sort of the mindset that you have in grief that I, those at least feel like resonant if nine eleven happened relatively close to when you lose your father to be like it's this I, you know, the dumb, obvious metaphor, it's this big su- It's this super huge thing that for people who lived in or around New York, like it's so big, you don't see it. It's just part of like, you don't go, Oh, those are Twin Towers. It would be like, you don't go, Oh, clouds. Those are still real. I, I remember those, <laughs> you know, you just, you, you're <laughs> like sky, you know, whatever. Um, And then you just notice the blank space when you're like, Oh fuck. I didn't realize that could go away. Um, right, And the same yeah. thing of like, Oh, f- like you really don't, because of that sense of permanency of something that pre-exists your birth that has been with you your entire life to the point where you don't think about how it's been there the entire life. It would be like losing a parent specifically is like if one day like chairs stopped existing
3: like everywhere
2: <laughs> and they they wow. they will never come back. Like, like the kind of mind fuck of like, and you try to relate that to someone and they're like, yeah, no they're just they they aren't real i don't know what you mean we just stand or we have like benches but and it's like you're the only one who's like this is fucking weird like is this weird to anyone else i'm like no no
3: it's it's normal
2: <laughs> um and yeah i think that like that provides enough like internal girding that for someone who may be put off by like well there's literature about the grotesque and then there's people who get like way too obsessed with it be like okay well he definitely can be a little bit obsessive with it that I think that can be said Mm -hmm. but this one's just a book about like someone's grief in a very like very strange time in American like social history.
0: Yeah, I feel like, I feel like you see more of um, my dog is very upset. Um, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like you see more of nine eleven in this book than I have the times I've read it. I remember kind of like, some sort of like vague references. Do you feel like 9-11 is kind of like just in the subtext of most of the book or are there like textual references to it that just I didn't notice? He
2: offhandedly mentions it, I think like two times. It may only be one time, but it's just like, it's one of those things where once it, at least for me, once it got said, the, the mood of it didn't really like, leave my head. Like it was like an emotional Mm -hmm. skeleton key where I was like, oh, okay, that's the, cause you know, like plenty of, even plenty of writers have like bad things happen, like losing a parent or something. You don't necessarily write a book about, like you don't write a book about every person you break up with or every person you have sex (laughs) with or something like that. But then Mm
3: -hmm. I
2: think those things happening close to each other was like, no, this needs to be the next thing that you, and just that. Even just one offhanded, yeah. like, oh fuck, okay, that makes sense. Why you'd be like, because this was like right off the heels of Glamorama, so or Glamorama. I don't know how to.
0: I always I say I say Glamorama. I heard Brett say Glamorama, but that, that sounds weird. Yeah, that to seems me. extra
2: wrong. Um, but <laughs> the um, which again had a bit more like like plot and distinct setting to it, uh, sort of like American mm-hmm. Psycho. And to have such a hard jump into something. Uh, he frames it as like explicitly autobiographical, but it also like it it very clear like I don't I don't think you actually had a ghost in your house, man. I don't like it. Just, just my <laughs> guess. As that would mean ghosts are real, and that's a whole other thing that I'm gonna have to grapple with if I accept that this is all a, a true story. <laughs>
0: Right. Uh, yeah, let's talk about the ghost, because we've talked more about it being about like grief and nine eleven um, uh, and that kind of thing. But it's also it's it's a ghost story. It's literally a
2: ghost. <laughs> it's like Quite a, frequently too. It's not it's
0: like the main thing. It's not like it's yeah. not like
2: he comes up like once easily <laughs> at a certain point. He's just hanging out in the house, and like every other page, you're like. And then the ghost fucked with me is some more, and it's my dad, and I'm like, "Fuck you, dad!" But also, I miss you. Um,
0: <laughs> Do you think he does miss his dad? Um, fictional Brett.
2: I think fictional Brett, uh, does in that very like the like dark way of when you have a really shitty relationship with someone who you feel you should be close to, and then they die, and you're really mad that you don't get to fix that, and so yeah. he's he's like he's he angry misses him. It's like, you fucker, you <laughs> died before we could fix things, you selfish prick. Like,
3: yeah. you couldn't even
2: <laughs> wait. You just had to fucking die, you jackass.
0: <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I'm curious, like how you how do you feel about the like supernatural horror haunted house aspect of this? Um,
2: I uh, so again, I, I like a lot of Gothic novels, so admitted admittedly, this also was like a, oh shit, oh this has ghosts, so oh, I love this, yeah. Um, right. <laughs> uh, and it's like that'll buy me a lot of. Li- Although, I, so one thing that I liked quite a bit about that is I think the ties between him and more general horror fiction are one very clearly there and basically everything that he's written but people like skim over it or they ignore it so Mm -hmm. um and it's a it hits on the same kind of problem that we have with um critical analysis of like horror work is they run into a horrific thing in the horror work and they go oh it's it's co-signing it you're like well (laughs) well no the genre is called horror because you're supposed to be horrified by that that's that's where the, right. and they're like, no, it's, you think it's good. Um,
3: right. And
2: so I think that one, this also winds up retro, because it's so clearly horror indebted because there is literally a ghost haunting a man. Uh, and it's literally a haunted house story. Like the ghost doesn't leave the house. And so there are moments where he like, he doesn't so much say it in the text, but he's more or less just leaving the house. Cause he's like, the, the ghost won't follow me to a grocery store. That's <laughs> stupid. No one haunts a grocery store. Um, <laughs> right. Like I can just drive around and the ghost will leave me, the, leave me alone. That's no one haunts a car, yeah. that's stupid. Um, but uh, that having that both makes the broader tie and the rest of his work a lot more obvious. And then also it makes, um, I, I quite, I'm fond of it in general. So the way that it lets really any writer let alone him play with grief by like you can literally have a ghost and there's certain kind of relational things you can hash out with a living character and literally the ghost of a character that would be way too cloying maybe to do Mm -hmm. as like just the way that someone thinks about someone they're grieving for that for some reason even though it's way more on the nose to just put a ghost in a house it just it seems less (laughs) like uh, okay he's a poet type i get it okay instead of like oh no <laughs> yeah. he's you know he's yelling at a ghost that's that's totally fine that ghost sucks
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so a lot of people this is commonly uh referred to as like his Stephen King homage um are you are you a Stephen King reader uh
2: i i am i i think it's hard to read um i you can't see this but i have four full bookshelves down here and then I have two more (laughs) upstairs and then I have stacks of books on the floor and then I have books and stories. You can't read a lot of books and not have read Stephen King. It's not (laughs) even a choice thing. It's like at some point someone's like here's the stand and you're like I don't want to and they're like read it and then you read it and you're like that was okay and they're like okay you can keep and they'll just come back later and they'll be like here's the shining and you're like why is it so big and they're like read it <laughs> um you're like why are there so many topiaries in it i thought it was a maze and they're like no the bad movie made it a maze you're like but the maze why is it with topia it's a haunted bush <laughs> like um but so like i see the stephen king um homage element here but, but i think that's maybe a um even if that's true i think that shorts what he's doing with it because like he's using it's a pretty standard ghost story thing of using a ghost to explore the grief of the loss of that figure and to hit on like what is it to be emotionally haunted by something to have like a like a traumatized response to something or post traumatic stress based on this thing to then literally embody it as a ghost haunting you and so it's Yeah, I think sometimes it's like if someone already doesn't like him, then they're going to be like, oh, it's just Stephen King. But it's like, well, I mean, other people write about ghosts. You know, that's not (laughs) Stephen King did not invent ghosts. That'd be crazy (laughs) if he did. That'd be amazing. He'd be. be
0: never had a ghost until 1970. (laughs) He'd be a
2: literary genius. He'd be like, I I came up with that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely like there's lots of horror writers. There's lots of ghost stories. And there's definitely like a lot about Lunar Park that is not Stephen King like but I also definitely like I definitely pick up on stuff in the book that feels like Stephen King outside of just the like the fact that it's a haunted house and the fact that like the main character is a writer and I think I think part of it is kind of kind of in the prose style like Brett will sort of do the thing of like he'll kind of like set his inner monologue onto, like, its own line and put it, like, in parentheses, like, but you already knew that, Brett. Like, sort of giving the the narration, kind of giving the impression of, like, he's, he's, like, mentally talking to himself, which is a thing that feels like he must be, like, kind of intentionally conjuring up Stephen King because he never does that in any of his other books. Yeah,
2: it's... There's a lot of, like, little prose and stylistic quirks in Lunar Park that don't really... Although, to be fair, in general, he's... um, for the most part, he's good about giving a book a distinct voice. Um, there are, there are a couple, in, like, I don't like I, I've read Imperial Bedrooms like two or three times. And I don't remember its like prose stylization. <laughs> I think that's just because it probably felt like, uh, like him at that point. And I was like, uh, but this one, mm. it's yeah, there is, um, I guess because of the way my brain is wired, I never really made that connection to it being like a Stephen King prose quirk. Although now that you mention it, uh, Stephen King does that quite, quite a lot. Um, (laughs) I I had, I just sort of thought of it in the, like, again, the ghost story thing of the mind. So like the parallel of the mind of someone haunting the body or haunting the thought of someone. And so yeah. Th- the way that obsessively recursive thought will happen in the midst of forward action you have cyclical action and all that kind of
0: wow you do have you do have impressive words i i <laughs> I, 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 I did that whole
2: <laughs> thing where i sp- spent too much money to learn a lot and then it just no one no one wants to hire you for that no one's like oh you're really good at reading books okay well i need an accountant and you don't you, you don't know what numbers are so you can't
0: have a job it's
2: like, oh, fuck, fuck
0: do any of us know what numbers are i sure don't they're they're uh, they could be anything i
2: watch a lot of youtube videos on numbers that's not a lie and i i got real fucked up <laughs> when someone was i got really fucked up when someone said like there are literally more numbers that we know exist but can't define than there are numbers that we know and the numbers that we know include every positive number and negative number <laughs> and i was like wait what Whoa. and they were, like, they were like yeah don't and i'm like am i i'm like i don't do drugs but i feel like i'm fucking high right now like what you like yeah. yeah, we found out there's Whoa. way more numbers than we thought, and I'm like, "What does that mean?" <laughs> I'm I not have s- to
0: start. I might have to start watching YouTube videos about numbers. <laughs> this
2: I'm either I'm either not smart enough or not dumb enough to know what that even <laughs> means. Yeah.
3: Um.
0: So, uh, did you know that that Stephen King wrote an article about Lunar Park?
2: I did not know that.
0: I, I found it just recently. Um somebody told him that that Braddy Stanellis' new book Lunar Park was was being attributed to him, like to as an homage to him. And he wrote up a little like review of it. And it's like a pretty it's like a pretty positive review. Um and he says some funny stuff. Like he um he says that he thinks American psycho is bad fiction by a good writer. <laughs> Uh, he's like, I had low expectations because of American Psycho, which I can kind of see. Yeah, it. I'm I'm coming around on American Psycho, but like, I'm not crazy about it. It
2: definitely has. Um, so again, yeah, it, it has every quirk that Brad Easton Ellis has as both a person and a writer, all in one place. And so it's like <laughs> there are moments where feels like it's trying to be 10 or 11 different books and it feels like it's very frustrating in that way because it's like the kind of thing where you can almost imagine someone coming back to it like the same story like 10 or 20 years later and writing the same sort of kaleidoscopic novel about a fucking horrible person and it being really really good but it's just it's just quite not very good like the whole but it's almost there (laughs) the whole way through yeah yeah, like, I, th- I think that sounds
0: like a really fair description. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
2: You're like, it, you're like, you, you're only a couple bits off, like, especially when you run into like the number of people that go like, yeah, well, the book's just like really fucking gross and like misogynistic and stuff. And you're like, yeah, but, well, that's more the the character that but it's not written quite well enough that I can strongly go like that's definitely just. <laughs> just it's about a person who's like that and if you're not into reading that kind of book i i get it that's fair but but instead it's like it's he doesn't quite always at least in that one doesn't quite always nail what you would need to prose wise to make it clear that like i the author i'm not it's it's a book about this person not yeah. Like I've written a book, Like let's just go. I've written a book about Hitler. I don't like him. He's bad. He's bad. <laughs> mm. Hitler is bad. Hot take. Um. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you for saying it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's I really worth. appreciate you going on the record
2: with that. <laughs> I, he, unfortunately, it's 2019. So we have to, we have to go. Like, to are like Nazis are actually bad. They're the bad ones.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I always feel like American Psycho, it like clearly clearly brett is a really good writer when he's writing american psycho but like he's kind of just writing it for him yeah like he doesn't really give a shit if anybody enjoys it which the way he talks about his writing is how he approaches he claims to he claims to approach like all of his writing like that like i don't care if anybody likes it i'm only doing it for me and he's maybe maybe partially just being like glib Yeah, it really shows in American Psycho. Yeah, that
2: one—he definitely was uh, like—he did the classic, um, the classic writer thing of you just uh, get super self-indulgent. And I don't think being self-indulgent in art is bad. I think we use that as we use that as a shorthand for saying that a book is bad when basically we're saying that we don't really like some of the choices made there. Like, it's a really lazy critical thing to say, "Oh, it's self-indulgent." It's like what. Lots of things are like Citizen Kane is fucking self-indulgent. But that's great. Like you. you
0: yeah. <laughs> like you can, Yeah. I guess you could argue that like anything that doesn't actively move the plot forward, like you can yeah. label as self-indulgent. And you can be
2: like, well, I mean the act of making fiction is self-indulgent because I <laughs> yeah. made something up that never happened and I want you to pay for it and then spent several hours reading it. That's fucking yeah. crazy. Like you make bad yeah. decisions if you think that's like, oh yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, so I could instead of learning about the real world, I could learn about a world that doesn't exist. Spend money to do <laughs> that, and it will take me many hours. Good, yes. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's sort of like like the term pretentious, which we use it as a shorthand for other real critiques we're trying to say but we instead pick a word that doesn't really seem to mean anything it's just like i don't like yeah. it and the words are big and they use semicolons and <laughs> why i don't know how to read those um right. <laughs> yeah you know, lunar park also winds up being a lot more uh weirdly weirdly concise i mean it doesn't help that the book's like a third the length or something but um half the length, <laughs> something like that but
0: of american psycho yeah Maybe, yeah. But, it's definitely longer than like than like, Less Than Zero yeah. or like Imperial Bedrooms, but it's definitely it, shorter than American Psycho. It
2: feels like a, just like a regular book. So if you have the image of yeah. him writing like short, edgy books or long, much more edgy books, um, this one is <laughs> it, like literally if you scraped the name off the cover, I feel like you could hand it to someone who otherwise feels like they don't like his work at all and they'd at least be like
3: yeah. 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 yeah, it's a, you know, it's a book.
2: Um, <laughs> they may like it, they may not like it, but I don't think you'd get the same kind of immediately violent. I mean, to be fair, at this point, he's sort of deliberately courting those kinds of reactions. Like, I don't, uh, I think everyone by now, especially who's watching this, will have read the, the like, takedown review of White that, uh, uh, uh. that, uh, Andrea, I, I don't know how to pronounce her last name because I, again, I'm borderline illiterate. Um, it, it's oh,
0: was that the one? <laughs> borderline illiterate with your thousands of books? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was that the one where the headline was like, "White"? Here's white, and why you don't need to read it. Yeah,
2: it was something like, the like headline. That. Was something like it was. Like that. It, was a, it was a really well written review. Like obviously, she's,
0: I haven't actually read it yet.
2: It's it it's extremely well written, but it also effectively says in um in an incredible. Uh, critical Pro is the same kind of thing that I think anyone would imagine looking at it, which is like, yeah, he's at a point. Of of course, he's shit stirring right now. Like, uh, why why wouldn't why wouldn't he be? Like, I don't. That's <laughs> totally yeah. in character. I don't. It would be weird if he <laughs> was like, yeah. So you know, it's been a couple years since my last book, and I wanted to have like a serious, introspective thing about you know. <laughs> I'm like, I don't expect that from you. The fact that you're gonna, like, yeah,
0: you're right. How creepy would that be? <laughs> yeah, it's like,
2: oh, he says a bunch of like shitty political opinions about like. Safe words and or safe spaces and, and trigger warnings and it's I wish you would out. talk more like,
0: about safe words. Like I don't
2: I, yeah, I imagine he's actually quite familiar <laughs> and, and fond of the notion of safe words because I, I feel I like want to read that book. I feel like he's the kind of guy who gets involved in that kind of stuff and then like immediately shouts a yeah, safe sure. word because he's actually like <laughs> extremely cowardly. It's like he gets, gets <laughs> spanked one time and it's like, that. I'm out, I'm done. I I I drastically <laughs> overestimated my ability to do this.
0: <laughs> I hope I would love for that to be true. And then
2: you'd be like, guess where I went last night? And he'd be like, I was there. <laughs> he, he'd copped out like immediately. And it's like, I was there
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, all right. As much as I would love to talk about Brett's kinks forever, I did have more, but <laughs> I do have more about the Stephen King article. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, are you familiar with John Cheever? I, yeah. I know the name. Yeah, I um. I don't really know anything about his work. Yeah,
2: he's, I'm 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 gonna be a bad person with an English degree and quickly Google him. Okay.
0: <laughs> I I know I've
2: read books by him. Um,
0: okay. Here's one really. of the.
2: Oh, he wrote oh, Falconer. Okay, okay yeah, Falconer is a good. Oh, okay. He also wrote something called Bullet Park, which sounds like a oh like a, like a punch <laughs> up of this. <laughs> like, I love the moon, but you know it's cooler. <laughs>
0: um because Stephen King says uh surely this will be the only work of mainstream American fiction to be reviewed in Fangoria magazine this year think of it as I don't know John Cheever writes The Shining so if you're familiar with John Cheever, I'm curious if if you think that John Cheever writes The Shining is an appropriate assessment of Lunar Park. Um, it's it's not
2: a perfect assessment of it, but I think that the the mind image of it at least is fair. So John Cheever is uh, very much a, he was like, a, he, he was a literary fiction writer um, in like the 60s and 70s. And he wrote in like, not quite, I forget what the, there's two Raymond's, one of them does gumshoe mysteries and the other one does like hyper minimalist prose. But he did like the oh yeah. There's like Raymond Chandler and then Raymond something, and I mix them up because I like the gumshoe guy more. Because he uh-huh. like and then they pull out their guns and they shoot him, and I'm like, hell yeah, yeah, I'm six. Um <laughs> the other guy's like waitress smoke cigarette, and I'm like, I don't care about this. I it's very beautifully written. I I just don't care. Um <laughs> john cheever was like that kind of guy um so that kind of like rough american literary prose but it being you know that kind of writing in a stephen king that at least loosely fits i think okay cool. i think to be fair literally john cheever rewriting a stephen king book would be very different from lunar park like very very sure. different but um, uh-huh. yeah, it, at least the notion of him crediting like Brady Stanellis knows how to write a sentence. And so as much as one can critique, say like the internal politics of its work or how they get embodied with, you know, how he, he's like a Lars von Trier where he'll, he'll make some really interesting stuff. And then if you put a microphone in front of him, you, you can't believe what he's saying. Like he, <laughs> I, and like, not because it's so outlandish that like, oh, I'm shocked, but it's more like, you're you are literally lying. Like, there's no way you're yeah. actually telling the truth. Just fucking right. with like you're like I can't yeah. believe they gave me a live mic. I can say anything. Okay, <laughs> um, yeah. It at least I think nails um, that Lunar Park is kind of like a a, a goofy haunted house thing, but like r- the sentences are way too good. Um, yeah, <laughs> and at least for most of it, I almost like would half forget like this is literally a ghost story. <laughs> 'Cause at a certain level yeah. of like that kind of prose it felt clear that he's like, okay, he's playing with the image of a ghost in order to talk about grief and
0: So does the ghost feel more to you like a like a kind of like literary symbolism thing, more than like an actual like genre fiction like <laughs> horror story type goes well,
2: uh yes and no i'd actually argue that like more ghost stories um than than people would probably guess lean more in this direction um that's probably fair yeah, like very few of them tend to be like the jump scare kind of thing like jump
0: mm-hmm. like
2: that kind of at least horror fiction doesn't it it's weirdly hard to find um most like that's why like punk had to become a thing because they were mm. like uh horror writers keep trying to be all Shirley Jackson and we want Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre which is fine cuz that movie's lit um can't deny that <laughs> um but yeah this felt like him just straight up writing uh like a a horror story but horror always being sort of bedmates with literary fiction anyway in terms of like you don't invoke like the uncanny of monsters and ghosts and psychological haunting and the the terror of those things and not get a literary result. Like you have to be extremely bad. You have to like sabotage (laughs) your work to to not have that happen.
0: Fair enough.
2: Like I'm I'm very shitty at writing. I just, I just, I put a frog (laughs) in the whole time. You're just like frog man.
0: (laughs) <laughs> that sounds great. I think that could win an Oscar. a good book
2: called The Burping Frogateer. <laughs> uh, the yeah, there we go.
0: Yeah, write it up.
2: <laughs> oh no, ribbeteer. Um, That's so- what it was. The Burping Ribbeteer. That's what I was. And then I forgot about <laughs> it as I was saying it because my brain was like, you're, you're saying this out loud into a microphone. You, I, I have to stop you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Is this a real book you wrote? No,
2: no. I'm just inventing it <laughs> no, just <okay>. now. <laughs>
0: OK, um, so another thing, another um, opinion that Stephen King has about Brad Easton Ellis is he says, I got no sense that Ellis has any real grounding in American horror fiction. I'm pretty sure he's read Shirley Jackson, Ray Bradbury and, of course, me, <laughs> but he's clearly seen enough movies to know what works and what to avoid. Uh That, that struck me as kind of funny. And I'm like, I guess like Stephen King knows American horror fiction better than I do. So maybe he knows what he's looking for, but I'm, uh, I wasn't really sure like what, what it was that was jumping out at Stephen King as like, Oh, this guy's like not really a horror guy. Do you like, I I don't know. Do you feel like he seems not grounded in American horror fiction? So I, I kind of get that.
2: Um, especially the, the vibe of, so it sort of touches on the kind of frustration that like say sci-fi or fantasy writers felt with the rise of slipstream um, fiction which, which are all really really good books but then it quickly became those are the good sci-fi books and oh, the rest yeah. are the bad and they're like what no what, what why are you being why Why can't we just say they're good why do you have to be mean to me out of the <laughs> blue what did I do um, horror had similar kinds of things going on where it was like this is the person who's good mm-hmm. horror and then this person is the one who's bad horror Um, right. and that wound up getting a little bit Um, touchy for writers, and so there was this, like, uh, not not that it became, not that it's necessarily a good thing, but that's where you get the, like, the gatekeeper-y kind of, like, horror fan going, like, no, this is the real stuff, but it's more because they're defensive over this part of the horror canon that has been, like, literarily marginalized, because it's, like, it's not as good as Shirley Jackson. It's like, well, yeah, she's fucking great. No one's gonna read a book of hers and think it's bad unless... You didn't read it, or you can't read. Um, uh, <laughs> two options. Um, but <laughs> other kinds of uh, like experiments going on with horror, like trends that are going on in horror. Um, I, I, I agree that this doesn't seem to reflect those, it feels more indebted to something like Shirley Jackson, um, or like. Stephen King on his like a more literary kick because he has moments where he's being a lot more. like the whole cell phone book that he put out was fucking garbage, but every now and again was, yeah, that's fucking terrible.
0: Fucking I honestly story. okay, I have only read Cell once and it was like ten years ago, but I've really liked it. I, I thought it was great. Well that's a
2: wild take that's additionally <laughs> the cell phone makes a zombie book being good is definitely a take. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm not saying that I think that cell phone makes you zombie is like an inherently <laughs> genius premise, but to me, Stephen King is about the character moments. <laughs> anyway, I, it's been a long time, so I would have to read it I again mean, to really defend this take.
2: To be fair, the guy I'll throw like the mist and he's, he's written like the first like three ish dark tower books are fucking great. Um, so like mm. yeah, he's, he's, he's has good books under his belt. And yeah, so I, I agree with him that this feels more like a guy who normally writes literary stuff dipping his dipping his toe into that but I think that I think that also that only works with one kind of definition of horror and I tend to prefer the bigger one of like work that engages with the horrific so like literature of the grotesque would deal with that. Like, it's hard not to think about horror and think of that, like, Charles Dickens would not fit anywhere in there considering how many,
3: yeah.
2: like, things happen in his work where you're like, if I took just this, that's a horror story. Um, <laughs> and so, like, I, yeah, so I, I, like, I don't think that the point he's trying to make is wrong of, like, he's not trying to pull these deep cut, like, if you go to, like, a, a deep horror fan that they're going to be like, you know, these are the, you know, five best short stories of 1987. Like that guy isn't going to go like, yeah, I see a lot of resonance here, but uh-huh. it, it like he is playing with the horror
0: canon. Yeah, that makes sense. I've always kind of, I honestly, I've always kind of felt the, like the opposite about Brady Stanellis. Like he's like a genre fiction author at heart, like a pulp author at heart, who just kind of like dresses up as a literary author.
2: I, uh, to be fair, I could see that, like like he learned how to write sentences really good, but aside from that, he <laughs> has like none of the other... Yeah. I, to be fair, actually that would explain most of his books, That espe- <laughs> yeah. especially ones that aren't this one and less than zero, which both have plotty stuff, but are a bit too, like deeply autobiographical to to be as as like uh glamorama is like literally it's a genre story like it that's
3: yeah right um
2: it's yeah. a romp is the best way to describe it it's a romp you will like or you won't like but it
0: right. there
2: is romping
0: yes definitely and imperial bedrooms is like a pretty clear like noir story so, yeah, he, he definitely sometimes like dips his toe into being like a pulpy author. But I guess I feel like he's like a pulp author, but I guess I, I never really feel like he's a horror author in like in a fancy suit. <laughs> I feel like he he seems more like, yeah, I don't know, noir or something. <laughs> I just feel like he like would have been most at home, like writing those novels that would sell for like a dime at the drugstore in like the 40s. <laughs> That's always what he felt like to me. <laughs> um so you said to me before that you think that this is like uh, his most underrated work, and that Brett's fandom as a whole does not give it its due. Um, so I'm curious if you could make an impassioned plea to the people who have pushed Lunar Park aside. Or said this is one of his lesser works. Like, what would you, what's what's your case for Lunar Park as um, his best book?
2: Uh, so, um, uh, I should have expected being put on the spot like this. I, sh- <laughs> I shouldn't say things that would put me on the spot and then not be ready for, uh,
0: It's <laughs> uh, a big ask. <laughs> you don't have to have a worked out thesis statement. Um, but like, what's the, be- what's the, best thing about this book like what what do you think like makes it his best book
2: so i think that a lot of his work um both necessarily and sometimes without necessity to seemingly out of nowhere engages with the most abrasive parts of his persona and the most brusque yeah. parts and um sometimes it's very deliberately uh those elements and i think that there's a lot of unfortunately well earned sort of angst towards him in general because of those things. Like you can't, just because you can't play with fire like that and then get upset that people are like, I think that's bad. Like, that's part (laughs) of the game. It's sort of like you you can tell as many offensive jokes as you want, but people telling you, I think you're shitty, that sucks like that you had to have known that was going to happen. But this is the one that's like the the cracking of the shell. Again, I, I again I pair it with um less than zero. Although that one the shell hadn't been formed yet. That was just a kid trying to write about his own experience. But pretty much everything after that. So rules of attraction being like an okay kind of genre thing. That's uh, American Psycho having you know all the. Pluses and minuses that I I'm going to assume that everyone listening to this knows that it has. I don't think that one's going to have any like secret angles that someone hasn't considered. Um, like imperial bedrooms glamour, like they they all sort of hover around the same kind of like you can imagine a a slightly conservative uh, to to at times much more conservative like white dude having written those for for better or for worse. But this one just breaks that open briefly and goes like, here's the emotional core of that person. And you don't have to walk away liking them. You don't have to walk away wanting to read anything else by them or thinking they're a good person or something. But this one will at least give you a shot of their internal experience of themselves. It's, it's wrapped in kind of a goofy ghost, ghost story, but it's also so easily it's one of those things where the symbols are so blatant that they, at least for me, become transparent because I'm like, I can't take I can't take this seriously as literally what's happening on the page. Like it doesn't, and it's too easy to go like, oh, this is a metaphor. And so like it, in terms of capturing like him as a man, not him as a, like as a human being, a human person who's had experiences and things like that. I think this one, does a better job than his, at least for me, like hit or miss other stuff that like it definitely like there was that early wave in his career honestly i don't think any of us are gonna be like old enough to have remembered like in the early 90s (laughs) or late 80s when he was like a super buzzed about writer like i would have been Uh like two um but, but that then generated like oh well let's get a lot of attention from hollywood and then that had a lot of hollywood stuff and then it became like what happened with like the like with v for vendetta where it just got picked up by like dumb edgy teen shit lords, and that's like that and you and so like that transposition happening and then being the the mass like the mass defection of like oh fuck bread east, east analysis just a stupid fucking wanker and all that kind of that neither one of those like if you strip sort of the social response and just look at the books like even just briefly just try to suspend one's awareness of the world and just read them i think this one at least has the best like emotional heart for me.
0: Yeah, I think that's really fair to say. And hey, look, look, well, look at what a beautiful uh, closing statement that was. You were so panicked when I asked you to <laughs> to give it in fashion defense of this book and you nailed it.
2: <laughs> look, if, if you stick the landing, you can literally mumble for the first half. Thank you, Lil Yachty.
0: <laughs> um, all right, well, uh, I feel like that's a good place to end. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug?
2: Read my stuff at uh Treble, uh, Invisible Oranges and Consequence of Sound, and listen to me at Death Sentence, uh, which is the podcast that I co-host. Um uh, I also serialize a sci-fi novel called Pyramid Head, if you wanna mm-hmm. if you wanna read that. I've I've been very bad about updating it, just so you know, <laughs> but it's um it moves slowly too busy writing for these other. And like, I'm, I'm an editor now at invisible oranges. And then like, I have, I have a day job because writing doesn't pay anyone. That's not, we don't talk about that quite enough, but no, no one pays you for writing. So.
0: (laughs) Cool. All right. Um, I'm excited to check all of that out. Um, oh, I also, I ask all of my guests and I apologize. I did not warn you ahead of time. that's good This is exact.
2: I'm good at shooting from the hip.
0: <laughs> oh, I ask. Actually, I ask all of my guests two questions. So first, I ask them to rate the book on a scale of one to five. And instead of one to five stars, we usually do something from the book. You know, one to five baseballs shaped like the moon, or what have you. Uh, so, what would you give this book?
2: Probably, uh, probably my 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 gut says three and a half because I don't I don't think anyone would like strongly argue against that it feels like <laughs> and like admitting that like so like again Finnegan's wake would be like a five um and it's like okay, okay well it's it's not Finnegan's wake so it's not gonna be a five. <laughs> um and then like I don't know like uh um like a history of seven killings or something by Marlon James which is like a relatively recent it book. It's a really good book. It inexplicably it's one of the only books that's good that's won a man booker prize. Normally that prize okay. means that your book is garbage. Um oh, really? Yeah, it's, it's I'm going lit- to have to
0: look at who some of the winners have been. I it's, don't really pay it's, attention.
2: It's a literary prize given out by basically a, a British military contractor. <laughs> oh,
0: God. <laughs> and
2: so it, it's their way of like culture washing how shitty of a company they are. They're like, oh, let's give money to to writers. But they can't ever say that things that we do are bad.
3: <laughs> okay. Oh, um,
2: but yeah, his was actually a good book, the one that. So yeah, I feel like three and a half of like it's. Again, if you sort of set aside your feelings about Bret East and Ellis and read it, it, it's a it's a good book. like it's a good book
0: cool yeah <laughs> I also gave it three and a half and I was like oh he's gonna be so offended he loves this book so much I only gave it three and a half <laughs> and so I'm relieved that you also give it three and a
2: half I think it's I think it's fair also to be like harsher with things that we like than than we uh yeah. like I can yeah. rave about something and be like rated out of five be like well I don't really do ratings I think that's kind of a cheap way to like, well do it anyway and I'd be like it's a three and like you were raving about it be like <laughs> three is halfway like I don't what like what <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then the other thing that I ask of all my guests is, um, to help my listeners cleanse their palate or to balance their literary diet. Uh, I ask my guests to recommend a book by somebody who is not Brett Easton And if at all possible, I ask that that book be not by a cis white man, but you do you. Um, um.
2: <laughs> so I uh, no, I actually have plenty of books that are not by, um, awesome. cis white men. Um, cause yeah, I think that, Uh, like obviously i'm not the best at it either but it is something to like to to keep addressing which is weird because like as a weird anecdote cis white men Mm -hmm. are not the majority of published authors but they are sometimes the majority of read authors which is an even more like frightening kind of statistic that like in any given (laughs) in any given bookstore it's going to be mostly people that aren't or maybe not a bookstore, but like a publishing list. But then it's like, what books are actually read by people? And it's like, what, what the, what? Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah, that sucks.
2: (laughs) um, Well, uh, the first one off the top of my head, that's just like within arm's reach is A Pale View of the Hills, which is the debut novel of Kazuo Ishiguro. He's the guy who wrote Never Let (laughs) Me Go. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just a really uh, dry Subtle literary novel that will either be very boring to you or make you cry. Those are the two options. Um, I can Find I'm I'm gonna walk over to a bookshelf briefly. I will be back in a okay. second. Okay. Okay, so I have a uh, I'm going I'm going to marathon them quick cuz I'm bad at All right. picking one thing. Um this
0: is great. You're my first guest to do multiples. <laughs>
2: it it helps that I'm staring at them and I would feel guilty. Uh, so, um first one after Kazuo Ishiguro would be Water Ghosts by Shauna uh Yang Ryan, which is uh her debut novel as well. It's one of those books where she wrote it as a um So she's a Chinese American writer. She wrote this as her like MFA thesis. And then the motherfucker gets it published by Penguin. (laughs) And I'm like, what the And then you read it and you're like, oh, that's, this is some of the most sensuous prose about like river ghosts and uh, like American racism towards those uh, like uh, against Chinese immigrants. And then also like uh, familial, like, generational grief. And I'm like, fuck you. Like, why are you, why are you so good at writing books? I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm angry now. Um, <laughs> there's The Historian by Elizabeth Costova, which is sort of like a, like an Umberto Eco style, like literary thriller um, about Dracula, where it's someone, uh, it's someone researching Dracula, like the book, and uncovers that Dracula is real. Um, <laughs> but it's <laughs> done great. over it's it's done over like three generations of scholars and notes of notes of notes and copies of maps of like it, it, i it, i love Borja and umberto eco and this is that but it's about dracula so it's like what the fuck this is fucking <laughs> um there is the uh the, it was recently put out now as an omnibus but there's the bindi series by uh Nedia who's a nigerian american um sci-fi author she's fucking brilliant. Um uh they also just recently put out the Collected Earthsea, like Collected Illustrated Books of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin, which is like one of the like best fucking fantasy stories you'll ever fucking read, like period. Um she's I think she was the first woman to become a Grandmaster of Science Fiction by the like society for like um science fiction and fantasy writers and just like yeah, she's a fucking perfect writer.
0: Is that an official title? They name people yeah, Grandmasters. Yeah, they call them
2: Grandmasters because they are nerds. Um, <laughs> but also it is tight. So that's that's right, the balancing cool. act. Cool. Um Yeah, and those would be the uh Great. ones off the top. Oh, and also um a more recent one is uh The People's Elbow, which is a like a shorter book by a writer named Rax King that's just um uh, severe content warning for sexual assault for that one, for anyone who may read it, but it's an intensely moving book. Like it's just supremely powerful.
0: All right, Great. Um, I already gave a recommendation earlier in this episode, but I'll give a bonus recommendation. Um, I'm going to recommend the fifth child by Doris Lessing. Um, Oh, fun, kind of yes. Fi-
2: You've read it. Yes. Uh, amazing. she's amazing.
0: Wow, I just found it. I work at a bookstore and it just like popped up randomly on the shelves, but I'd, I'd never heard of it anywhere. She's I, uh, one of the few
2: sci fi writers who fucking won a Nobel. Like, I keep forgetting oh, she that. Did. Fish won <laughs> a fucking Nobel. Like, wow. yeah, right? Like, I can't,
0: what did she get a Nobel for? Do you remember the title?
2: So uh, Nobels are given for body of work rather than a specific oh. book on paper. Oh, and okay. in reality, gotcha. often, the, like for Toni Morrison, it was after Beloved came out. They're like, we have to give her a Nobel now. Um, <laughs> gotcha, that, okay. That's another one where like, if you go into a bookstore, they're going to have Toni Morrison pick any book by hers you haven't read, buy it, read it. You will like it. Um, uh, <laughs> unless you're a bad person, then you won't like it. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I don't remember what Doris Lessing won uh, the Nobel off of the back of.
0: But that's okay. So um, while you're looking that up, "The Fifth Child" for anybody who hasn't heard of it, it kind of goes along with Lunar Park because it's also like a horror story that's also like a pretty clear like allegory slash metaphor for like familial drama this british family this like upper class british family in the 60s and they have a beautiful family and then their fifth child is born and he's this weird little like gremlin monster <laughs> um and it's just kind of like trying to deal with having this child who is terrible <laughs> uh and i i read it it's pretty short and i read the entire book in one sitting like it's it i it's very readable. I didn't plan to read it all in one night, but I just like sat down with it and kept being like, "Oh, eh, one more chapter and then it was done. So it's, yeah, yeah, recommend it.
2: <laughs> so apparently she won it in, she won the Nobel in 2007, which was oh. the publication date for her very last novel. So it probably was just oh. that they were like, we, we can't like keep not giving her this award. We gotta, <laughs> Go <ahead>. um, <laughs> she wrote like a very brilliant sci-fi series called, um, Canopus and Argos archives, uh-huh. which is just five novels. That it, it's very like Asimovian, where it's the same society but like generations apart, book by book. So it's not about like following characters as much as following a society over like millennia. Um, cool. <laughs> and then yeah, she wrote that she was uh, like in the same kind of. Um, school of their writing sci-fi but they don't necessarily fit in that box to people who are misogynistic dweebs as like mm-hmm. Margaret Atwood who like oh, would hate to be called a sci-fi writer but definitely <laughs> is I also get the feeling that Doris Lessing is pro- probably less turfy than Margaret Atwood who oh. the, who very unfortunately seems to have gotten that brain virus recently He's, <laughs> it's like just don't tweet just stop it just, <laughs> read, just don't <laughs>
0: This. <laughs> all right that's, now, that's great. old I, people
2: though that's just yeah. that's just what old people will do they will betray us at some point
0: <laughs> all right well thank you so much for being here this was great
2: yeah absolutely thank you so much yeah i had a lot of i, I enjoyed this quite a bit as, yeah. I would say, as i would say i had a lot of fun but fun <laughs> in, uh, having a conversation doesn't quite feel like what my experience of conversations is it was it was a Fair. very satisfying conversation which <laughs> <I> is <agree>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you guys so much for listening. Rate us on iTunes and check out some of our fabulous brother and sister podcasts here on the Major Cast Network.